verses 1 through 22, and it can be found on page 531 of your house Bible. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we have been saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we have before us a really powerful passage of scripture. I probably say that every Sunday because all of scripture is God breathed and is useful. It's, there is a work that God wants to do as this word becomes rooted in our hearts The book of Acts is an account of stories. And it's what I love about the book of Acts is that we see these stories of God at work through the New Testament church. That Jesus died, that he rose again, and that the gospels are not the end of it. But the gospels point to the fact that Jesus still works through his people. That his word and his work continue through his apostles by the power of his Holy Spirit, that his work and his word continues through his church today and by the power 
of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to talk about that there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. If you read Acts chapter 4 verse 12, this is kind of the key linchpin of the passage. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when you read this passage, and if you read it isolated from this portion of scripture, you, you miss the reality by which Peter speaks of this, because he is banking his entire hope on this reality. He is banking his entire life on this reality, that there is salvation in no other name by which we must be saved. That is something that has transformed the life of the Apostle Peter. Now, just 50 days prior to this, Jesus Christ was being crucified and Peter was falling at a distance while he was on trial. But now here, it is the Apostle Peter who in boldness stands on trial filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a reorientation, a rearrangement of what took place in this Man, And that reorientation is something that I'm convinced has to take place in our hearts and lives. And that if we would give ourselves to the ministry of God's word here today, I do believe that the Holy Spirit would fill us, will root his word in our hearts, and will empower us to live for and proclaim the name of Christ. That the Holy Spirit will empower the believer, me and you, to live for and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That's the hope, that we would leave here feeling the power of God's Spirit and with boldness have the confidence to both live for and proclaim the name that is above every name. So it was in February of 2015, there was an image that came across the news, uh, across the TV screens around the world, and um, it was entitled The People of the Cross. And this image struck me to the core, because these are 21 Egyptian Christians who are on the shoreline of Libya about to be executed. In fact, it was ISIS that called this video People of the Cross. And it was their call for the people of the cross to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. They were given the offer to live, to, to gain their lives. But they only had to do one thing. They had to confess that Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his son. And if they were not to do that, then they would be beheaded. And there was a lot, there was a video for, for all to witness and see. And this video went all around. I hadn't, I did not have the heart to watch this video. I could not muster it. Even now, the picture is one of this somber seriousness upon us. But these people of the cross all refused to recant their belief in Jesus Christ. And they all were murdered on that day on the beach in Libya. And it was said that you could see them mouthing before they were killed, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, 
Jesus. There's a seriousness to our faith that goes beyond the world that we live in right now. And I, I want you to know that. I believe I need to know that. Because this faith is costly. We should feel the cost of this faith, whether we live in Egypt, whether we live in Libya, whether we live in Afghanistan, whether we live in France, no matter where we live, we should feel the costliness of our faith because our faith comes at great opposition. There is great opposition to the people of the cross. There has always been great opposition to the people of the cross. If there's anything Acts chapter 4 tells us, it's that God's beloved apostles were those who would take the message of the cross to their grave because they believed it so much. You want an authentic Christianity? These are the disciples of Jesus Christ that followed them the three years he lived on on planet earth and witnessed and marveled at the power of his healing and and knew of the wondrous news of the resurrection and lived faithfully to the end of their days professing Jesus Christ. Even Peter, the coward Peter, ended up crucified upside down. This is the seriousness by which we must regard our faith in Christ. And and my prayer is, is that some of us are in a slumber. Some of us are sleeping And we need awakened. Some of us, our hearts are hard and we live for convenience and comfort and our hearts need to be softened and we need to be awoken out of this state of, of, of dozing off and brought into reality so that we ourselves can be the people of the cross. Tony Merida, he's a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina. He, he, he says this, it struck me. This week, as I kind of use this, this quote and I filtered it over my life, he says, if we cannot cite evidence of at least mild forms of persecution at work in our own lives, it's possible that we have a nimble faith or perhaps a closet faith that evades opposition. Can you remember the last time your Christian faith was opposed? I'm not talking about Persecution. I'm not talking about you being on an orange jumpsuit. That's far from our imagination. And my prayer is that it, it would never get that way. But my prayer is that if it would, we would, we would walk in accordance with the will of God and trust the Spirit for boldness in the midst of that opposition. And that we would be people that don't seek to have our faith hidden in a closet, But that our faith is loud. Do you hear that? Our faith is loud. That we would live out the reality of that which we proclaim and worship. That the beauty of worship isn't all about just singing songs. And prayer, although that is very much a part of worship is, but that singing song and prayers inspires the heart to do, to go anywhere, to do anything for the sake of the name. Because it's that name that is above every name. is that name by which everyone who would call upon that name would be saved. Okay, so opposition, you see this in the first seven verses. Actually, you see it all the way through. But you see the beginning of opposition in the church 
uh, in seriousness for the first time since the church has gotten started. They were ridiculed a little bit before this moment, but here there is full out opposition. Well, it's important that we have a little bit of the context as to what happened here. Uh, Uh, Peter is going to the temple at the hour of prayer. There was a regularity to going to the temple to pray. Peter and John, two by two, just like they used to as disciples, went to the temple to pray. There was a man at the beautiful gate who was lame from birth. The beautiful gate was one of the entrances and, and his friends brought him there so that he can beg for alms on that day. He was about, he says that he was over 40 years old at the end of this passage. And so if you imagine Peter and John are going to the temple through the beautiful gate and they see the lame man who's begging and he connects Peter in the eyes and he asks for alms and Peter checks his wallet and he pulls out his wallet and he sees that he has no cash on him today. And then he says, John, John, you got anything on you? No. I don't know if that's how it went down, but that's how it probably would have went down for me. And Peter says, uh, says this to the man, looks at him in the eyes and says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And there was a wonder that took place. It was a miracle. This man who was lame from birth. I mean, could you imagine what, what we would, what we would experience today if something like that, how fast it would go across social media, how fast it would be across the news screen, news screens that a man from birth was healed. Uh, there's a friend of mine who has spina bifida and his legs, he cannot use his arms. He uses, so he's got a really strong upper body. Um, and he's often in the wheelchair and his legs he cannot use and, and his legs are, are really, really small and tiny. His muscles, you can tell they're, they're not used. This was an absolute miracle because I could imagine that everything in his body had to come into being in that moment for this lame man to be able to rise and walk. I mean, it was truly a marvel. And those who were in the temple saw it and it says that they worshiped They were in awe and they were praising God. And not only did this man rise and walk, but he started dancing. He stood to his feet and he started leaping. Luke gives us this detail that it was was no simple thing that happened on that day. It was a marvel. It was a miracle. It was a wonder. And following the wonder, Peter used it as an occasion to preach the word. I think it's important you see this pattern in Scripture, and we've already seen it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God fills the upper room. The tongues of fire fall upon the disciples. That There's a sound like a run, rushing winds, and then they spill out, out to the, the streets of Jerusalem, and there's already a commotion about what has happened out there. A miracle has happened, or a wonder has happened, and the word is proclaimed. Here we see that pattern again. Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, brought healing to this man. A wonder happened, a miracle happened, and a message followed as a result. Here's the point of that, that I think it's important that we don't miss. The wonder points to the reality of the word, right? The miracle points to the reality of the message. You can see the miracle as many people did and miss the message, and there is not a miracle. 
You could miss the wonder as many people did and miss the word and there is not a miracle because the ultimate miracle resides in the fact that you killed Jesus, says Peter, and God raised him up from the dead. Man, I like that. That's my voice coming back. Sorry. Get a little excited there. Thank you. Thank you. There's a, there's a, a reality there that's so powerful. The, the miracle is that people come alive in Christ. What good is a miracle if this man is going to die anyway and not believe in Jesus and go to eternal damnation in hell apart from God? No, the miracle is that this man is healed and God uses it as a witness for thousands of others to come to faith. That's the miracle. That's the wonder and the word. That's the miracle and the message. That's the beautiful power of the gospel. And God is still in that business today. He is still in that business today. That we would, our attention would be at the wonder of God. And it would cause us to stand amazed by the word of God as the word of God confirms his miracles, his awesome deeds, and his wonders. And that's what Peter does. He brings the word of God to bear. Verse 2. Greatly annoyed. Not everybody's happy. Not everybody's happy. I asked my wife if I could give the accurate translation of what that verse is. And she said that's probably not a good idea. Let's just say they were ticked off. There were some people that were ticked off that were there. They had heard about what happened. And it says greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't mad because this man had been healed. They were mad because of what they were teaching. They, they, these are the same people that crucified Christ. These are the same people that had Christ on trial. Why did they do that? To get rid of Jesus. And here Jesus is coming back again. Through the apostles. They're greatly annoyed. I mean, they were perturbed. They were opposed to the teaching of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And it was the beginning of a of catching of wildfire. Maybe they heard it after Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came alive in the apostles in the 120 in the upper room. And the message of Jesus spilled outside into Jerusalem in the countryside. And they thought maybe it'll just go away. But here they are hearing it again. And they say we got to do something about this. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Annas and Caiaphas. And all those guys who are in the name who are, whose names are in the Bible, but for the wrong reasons. You don't want your name in the Bible for that reason. Their name is in there, but they are going to oppose the work of God. They are going to oppose the ministry of the gospel. These are the religious establishment. It's interesting how the religious establishment, it's the religious people who don't like what's being said here. It's the people who follow the law. Do you see that Peter wasn't preaching rules? He was preaching resurrection. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. 
Christianity is not about rules. Christianity is about resurrection. If you make it about rules, it's not Christianity anymore. If you make it about resurrection, that brings life transformation that God uses in a powerful way. Oh, it'll change your life. And it'll change your life according to the rule or law of God. I'm not saying that that stands in opposition. But I'm saying if you make it about rules and not the resurrection, then you still have damnation. You still have hell as a result. Because the gospel is about the resurrection. And we saw in Acts chapter 3 when Peter said it. He said, you, you received a murderer and you killed the author of life. That's, that's what we did. You, you took over Jesus Barabbas, the murderer. And rather than choosing the author of life, you choose the one who would take life. That's what our sin nature does. That's what the power of the resurrection shows us. But it also says that God's grace is greater than our sin because Jesus was resurrected. He rose again. And that God was gracious in his mercy to allow us to see that resurrection and come to repentance. That's the end of chapter 3, is that you would come to repentance, that I would come to repentance, that these Pharisees, that the Sadducees, that all who were there would come to repentance and refreshment would come as a result of it. That we would not be those who oppose the cross, but we would be those who live for the cross. We would be like our Egyptian brothers in Libya, living for the cross, even if it meant death. And so what we see here, I think I want to point out something to us that is really easy for us to become or be like the Pharisees. In fact, I'd like to probably tell you that I found myself being a lot more like the Pharisees than I would like to admit. Because you have to ask the question, what was the Pharisees' motivation to oppose the resurrection or to oppose the cross? What was their motivation? It was self-preservation. Self-preservation. If Jesus is really the one who is the king and kings of Lord of Lords, it means they killed him. If Jesus is really the one who sits on the throne, it means that their place is a place of puppetry. It's not real. It's made up. They don't really have any authority. They don't really have any power. And so they had no choice that if their goal was to remain there, these people of position and title and to preserve their way of life, then they had no, they had no other choice but to crucify Christ. They had no other choice but to go against and oppose Peter. That's where self-preservation gets in the midst, gets opposed to godliness. If we are going to be a people of self-preservation, we can use all the good reasons in the world. We could say that we're doing this to preserve our tradition, that we're doing this to have good and moral foundations. And we could do those things, but in the midst of doing those things, if we're trying to preserve self and preserve a way of life, then we're opposing the resurrection. And that's what is happening here. Michael Kelly is an author and pastor. He says, self-preservation is the commitment at any cost to keep and protect what one is, has, and has achieved. Self-preservation is at any cost to keep and protect what one is, has, and has achieved. What are you trying to protect today? 
what one is, do you realize that your identity is in Jesus Christ? And so your title doesn't matter. Do you realize that your identity is in Jesus Christ and, and, that, and that who you are is defined by him? And if you're not allowing him to be the, to be the f- defining reality of your life, then you have to lay down your life for his sake so he could raise you up again. What one has, what one has, why is stuff so important to us? Why are paychecks so important to us? And, and I know that, I, I, and I know numbers and economy and dollars and cents and things like that. But do we not realize that our God is the God of a cattle of a thousand, on a thousand hills? That he'll always provide. There's one testimony that I've seen in my life is that God will provide. God will provide. God will provide. And here's the other thing that I've experienced. That he's never given me enough to where I feel like I'm okay in and of myself. And I'm glad for it because if I did feel like I'm okay in and of myself, then I would probably leave God behind and say, I don't need you. But God keeps me dependent and humble and on my knees to rely upon him. That's the beauty of the resurrection. That's the beauty of of what happened to the people at the cross of the cross. That they believed that there was a life to come. And so their life, they counted of little value. And they lived for Christ or what we have achieved. The older I get, the more I, I, I can look at my life and feel like a failure because I want achievement, achievement, achievement. And what I, where I've gone is never enough. And I've got to go further and faster and better. And I compare myself to others. And it just becomes this encroaching disease that happens on me. That there's this internal angst and fear that says that my value is in what I achieve. But the cross says that my value is in what Christ has achieved for me. Isn't, isn't it? That's the beauty of the gospel. So let me tell you something, as you get older and you're entering into maybe that itch that I have, let me tell you that you living for the cross, you've, you're living for the reality that Christ has already achieved victory for you. So now you live in the midst of that victory. It doesn't mean you twiddle your thumbs and say, Jesus, take the wheel. No, you don't just put on cruise control. You go in light of that confidence that Peter's a great example here. Filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness. Paul says in Acts 20, 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That I may finish the race. He finished the race. And he lost his head doing so. He was executed doing so. He finished that race. His life was not a waste. And neither will yours be. If you lay down what you are, what you have, what you've achieved, and you say, I am not living for self-preservation. I'm living for the resurrection. There's power of the name. There's a question that comes here. Oh, I can't forget. God blessed him in the midst of opposition. God blessed him. The church went from 3,000 to 5,000. It was a furious fire of the Spirit as the winds blew through Jerusalem. 5,000 men. This was likely around 10 to 12,000 believers that this went to in that time. There was a furious fire of God's Spirit that had been started. 
And he blessed the church even in the midst of opposition. Do you feel the opposition today in the church? You feel it in America today? Do you feel it like I feel it? There is an opposition. There is an opposition. But count it as a blessing, friends, because God will with fury. He will bless us. He will bless us. And people will come to Christ as a result. Just like we see here. And it'll get harder. And it'll get more difficult. And some of us were scared of that. Peter was scared of it too. But we see that there is a power that took place. And the power ultimately was in the name of Jesus Christ. There's the question that happened here. By what power and by what name did you do this? Said one of the Sadducees. By what power, by what name did you do this? And then it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he might have remembered what Jesus said back in Matthew ten seventeen. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And, they will, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak and what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You might be tempted to look at Peter and say, what would I do in that situation? I, I don't know if Peter ever thought about that because I think that the Holy Spirit gave him a supernatural power when he was there. I remember when I had my surgery and I was a little bit afraid because my neck was going to be sliced open, right? And I was a little bit afraid going into the operating, going into the nurse's station. I'm like, it's coming, it's coming. And then I talked to the anesthesiologist and he put this like magic juice in my IV and it was like fine wine, man. It just, woo, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and I know it's not a perfect illustration, but man, when you get to that time where God's going to use you, just trust that the Spirit's going to fill you and trust that you will walk in accordance with his will. He'll do it. It's not you, any part of it. God does the work from start to finish. He saves you. He sanctifies you. He glorifies you. It's his work, not yours. What's our job? Do whatever you want, God. Do whatever you want. I am your servant. But we live in a time where the church seems impotent, don't, don't we? The Catholic church is being rocked by sexual abuse of the priest. And it's hemorrhaging numbers. Hemorrhaging numbers. The Willow Creek movement that started the boomer movement in the church lost its founder due to... a. Uh, sexual harassment charges, sexual misconduct. Bill Hybels, who many pastors looked up to, they thought this guy's a man of character, dignity, and honor. Well, he is now amongst the fallen comrades of pastors. And I pray for him, and I pray for Willow Creek, and I pray for churches that are like it. But those churches are hemorrhaging numbers. The Southern Baptist Church is in the middle of political infighting. They are so at one another that they cannot turn outward and see a lost and broken world. And they are hemorrhaging numbers, even in our church today. And I feel this. There are people that are saying that they are hanging up God or hanging up on organized religion or the church and saying, I'm going to do this on my own. And it causes me to break, it breaks my heart. And it makes me think, God, is there any power in your church today? Is there any power in your people today? And here's the power. The power is in the name. 
The power is in the name of Christ. We don't have to create some kind of new program or new model or new thing. We need to return to that which is old. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And that's what Peter brings us back to. How was this man healed? Why was he healed? And if we are being examined today, Peter says, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by the means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you is well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This man was healed by the one you rejected. This man is healed and he's received. He's received faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were there received the word of God and were saved. And now they're rejecting the cornerstone again. Verse 412. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our culture and our country is not opposed to Christianity light. They're not opposed to it. You can talk about Jesus. You can wear your symbol of a cross. You can have the fish on your bumper sticker. You're not going to come against Um, you're not going to come against opposition for those things. But the moment that you declare the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ is the moment that the world begins to say, "I, I don't think that I can trust them. The moment that you begin to, you, you begin to proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ for salvation and there is salvation in no one else, then the people around you will start to shudder. They'll be in shock. Do you really believe that? I mean, really? Like, I, I mean, I, I go to church and I kind of do the, the religious thing, but, but like, don't always lead to God? Don't we all get to the same place at the end of the day? That's what is acceptable to the world. Proclaim Jesus, fine, but don't put him above anybody else. The, the Bible unapologetically does this. It proclaims Christ. And it puts him above everyone else. Unapologetically. In fact, I would argue that it's loving to do so. That here's what we have to realize as we have a closet faith. And God may be convicting you of that. That it's unloving to not do that. Because people are dying and going to hell because they cannot receive the message and the word or the miracle and the wonder as a result. You carry in you a miracle. And that's the beauty. The, the, the testimony before them was this man who was crippled from birth that was brought to, to complete and total healing. And they had nothing to argue as a result of it. They had, no, they, they had no argument against Peter and John except slap them on the wrist, put them in jail overnight and say, don't do it again. If you do, we're going to bring you back in here. That's what they did. And that, that we, we, we're, we're afraid of somebody ridiculing us. We're afraid of somebody not liking us. We've got more fear of man than we do of God. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He says, if or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you live for the pleasure of the approval of the watching world, you will never be a servant of Christ. Because God has called you to live under the approval of God and to forsake the approval of man. And that's how we're going to combat This opposition is we are going to be on the offensive with the name of Jesus. Think through those people who need Christ in your life. Think through those people who you've had the opportunity but haven't, you've missed the opportunity. Ask God to give you strength and courage and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and go for it again. Go for it again. Minister his grace to them. Tell them of the name and fame of Jesus. And I'm saying do so with a barbecue, with a pool party. Do so in the, in the comfort of your home and living room around a meal. You don't have to be like wearing an, uh, an army outfit and th- telling them that, that they're going to they're gonna go to hell in, in, in just a moment if they don't turn. But, but you have to put in place the reality of your relationship with Christ. If not, you're just going to, it's just going to be in the closet. And someone who you know is going to not know the wonder and the miracle of Christ in their life. You are the changed life that stands as a testimony of God's grace before the world. That's why you're the witnesses. You are the crippled lame man who God has brought healing to. You are like the apostle Paul who is a ferocious enemy of the gospel who has now been brought to repentance and now lives for that. You are Peter who is the coward and the fisherman that God made into the rock of the church. You are the, uh, the you are the, the the work of God, the building blocks on the cornerstone of the church by trusting in faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says when they tell him that he's not supposed to talk about Jesus anymore. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Here's what Peter says to them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I can't stay silent. I can't stay silent. I can't stay silent. I can't stay silent. When Jesus is going through Jerusalem and his disciples are honoring him and worshiping him, they say, Jesus, get your, get your people under control. Come on. How disrespectful to God. Jesus is saying, no, no, if they don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out. We are made to praise God. We are made to live for God. We are made to tell of his grace in his goodness and glory. And we, like the man who was brought to, 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 to new health as a 40-year-old or over 40-year-old man, we are the miracle that stands before the watching world. And listen, we've got a message that needs to be proclaimed. We are the wonder that the world is gazing at. And we have a word to give them. And everyone that God places around us by the power of his Holy Spirit, because the results are not up to us, but up to him. But God will, trust me, God will cause people to praise his name as you live the wondrous reality of the gospel and proclaim the word of salvation to those who are perishing. He will bring people from death to life. 
I, I think I want to ask you the question that, that comes as a result of this passage that, that Peter brought to reality amongst the Pharisees. He says, you rejected the cornerstone that the whole building was to be built on. You rejected it. I want to ask you the question, where are you rejecting that cornerstone of building your life on right now? Is there anything that you do that in your life, is there anything that grabs your heart and your attention and your gaze that's not worthy of your worship that you are building your life on right now? And what needs to be repented of? Because as he says in chapter three, he says, repenting comes with refreshment. Because Christ is the cornerstone and we are his church. And the building blocks of his church are the imperfect people who God uses to bring redemption. Eugene Peterson has a, what's called the message paraphrase of the Bible. And I really love the way he says this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, it's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer hopeless. You're no longer alone. God is with you. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. The faith that we have now, it's now home country. We're not exiles in the midst of faith. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here. With as much right to the same to the name Christian as anyone. God, God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here. I don't know how you got here today, but man, the journey I took here, man, what a journey. But I, God brought me here and God brought you here. In what he is building, he used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you. Fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day. A holy temple built by God, all of us built into it. A temple in which God is quite at home. God is at home in you. He resides in you. He's working in you. God's at home. He's moving. One, one author calls, gives an illustration. It's like a young married couple. They, bought, they build it by a fixer-upper and they know it's going to take a while to get it the way they want. But bit by bit, they do that work until that home becomes home. God's doing that in you right now. Bit by bit. He is building in you a marvel. You trust him in that? You trust him in that? Will you let him be that cornerstone? Will you walk in the reality of that? And will you live a faith that's loud, that proclaims Jesus Christ, trusting that the Holy Spirit will empower you? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. You are the cornerstone. You are our solid rock. You are, God, the, the rock in which the house is built. Jesus, you say you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God, therefore, the church is not impotent. So thank you for your power. And God, I pray that it is your name that today rises above the names that are on our hearts. That it is your name that rises above the other false gods that could be worshipped. It is your name, God, that we proclaim. It is your name that we live for. 
And it is your resurrection power, God, that comes as a result. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen.